welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. 1 John chapter 2, if you've been here a few weeks now, it looks like we're going to go through this letter of John to the church. I know oftentimes when we hear music, we just hear music. But songs like have been sung today, we need to listen to the words. I trust that you're born again and you know it. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, as the Bible says we are. You're even extra spiritual if you've been water baptized. <laughs> no, you ought to be baptized by immersion with water after salvation. And um, sanctified. Started stealing my message. So I'm glad she stopped. 1 John chapter number 2, only a few verses this morning, verses 12 through 14, while you're flipping over there. Um, the last couple weeks we have been in this book and it's really, or this letter, it's really important that we understand that John wants us to know that we're born again. He wants us to have assurance in our salvation. He wants our, 1 John chapter 1, our joy to be full. He wants us to know that we know. And um, later he'll say, I've written all these things to you so that you may know that you're born again. And um, I, I think I hurt somebody's feelings already when I said climate change. I, I apologize. I got off on the wrong foot. But um, it probably happened. But I use that as an example partly to laugh to get through it so that I don't lose my mind, but as a Christian, what a great peace we have, knowing that no matter what happens, we're born again, our salvation is secure, this world is not our home, we really are just pilgrims passing through, let's have some fun and enjoy it while we're here, but um, eyes have not seen nor has entered into the heart of any man what God has laid up in store for us. Those of us who love him is what he said. And so that's, that's how we get along. That's how we get through. That's how we laugh instead of cussing. <laughs> for some of you. Um, because we know, we know, we don't just say it. We don't just... We, we know that uh, God's in control. Yes, I do believe the climate is changing, if that makes anybody feel better. But it ain't shock to God one minute. And he's not up there wringing his hand saying, oh, kill the cows. Um, it's just tearing up the ozone, what they do after they eat. <laughs> he, he's not trying to figure this out. It's all right. And so um, some of you that didn't quite understand the code there, ask your partner at lunch, and um, after lunch, and maybe. <laughs> First John chapter two, let's stand as we honor God's word. It's absolutely true. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, you're wrong. And by faith, I believe it's true. By faith, you're, you're at a church where by faith, I'm pretty sure the strong multitude, majority of us believe it's true. And um, what a comfort we have. John says in verse 12, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. He says, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because you have known the father. I've written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. 
I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Would you pray with me, Father? We pray that we ourselves would be open to your word today. We'd be encouraged. Believers would be encouraged. Unbelievers, those who are lost, who've never been saved, they would certainly be convicted by your Holy Spirit, see their need for salvation. God, as I've prayed and my heart's desire over the last several weeks has been that no person leaves this church after a Sunday morning service without full assurance in their heart that they're born again. God, I believe that's your will. I believe your will is that none perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God, I pray again today that no one leaves here today. No one goes to bed tonight without assurance in their hearts that they're born again, without the peace that passes all human understanding. Help us to have attentive and receptive hearts to your word. This morning, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. For the last three weeks, this has become a series on authentic Christianity, what it really looks like to be a Christian. I think as time continues to pass here, not just in America, but across the world, we will begin to see more and more who really is and who really isn't born again. There will be a falling away. I think we are already seeing a falling away. There's a lot of conversation about that among church leaders, uh, theologically, what that looks like. Uh, Personally, I don't believe that anybody falls away who's ever been born again. I think there's gonna be a lot of false professors who say, I've had enough, I never really believed it anyway, and I'm done with this, and I'm gone. I don't think anybody who's ever been truly born again regrets it. I don't think anyone who ever really has been truly born again says, I'm tired of this peace-filled, joyous life. I want a little wreckage in my life. But there will be a falling away. John says in this chapter, we're not there yet, but it's a good reminder that uh, many will uh, leave. They will fall away. And he says the response, the rationale behind that is they came out from us, but they were not of us. A lot of people leaving the Baptist church. If you want some good reading material, then Google, not right now, afterwards, Google the research about the people leaving the Christian church, leaving the Baptist denomination, and um, it's, it's kind of astounding at some of the rationale behind it. And I believe, just like many, I believe, conservative theologians and preachers and pastors believe today, conservative Christians in the church believe today, I believe that the reason is they're leaving because they came out from us, but they were not of us. And what I am seeing in my little world, and what I believe we're seeing in the the conservative born-again church world is a, uh, a weeding out, a filtering. And what's gonna be left behind is a leaner, meaner, more aggressive, more mobile church to get the job done in these last days. We're gonna lose a lot of dead weight. We're gonna have a little more muscle, a little more lean, a little more willing to do the work of the ministry. It's gonna be necessary as the day approaches. People are finding out, you know what? That church life is just not the life for me. And I figured out, someone who's not born again, the church life is not for them. And that's what we're seeing. So John's writing, even 2,000 years ago, to a group of people who are experiencing what we're experiencing, and I believe some of this is prophetic as to what will happen. In his first letter to the church, first, second, third, later, he addresses a lot of what's going on, these falling away, these leaving, and it's interesting that he covers it with doctrine. It's like, look, go back to the doctrine of Jesus. And um, I'm trying not to meddle too much here because this is going to be a relatively short sermon. 
We're all hoping. But I think what he's trying to do, uh, I think what we try to do is we try to solve a spiritual problem with a carnal solution in the church today. If, if the spiritual problem in the church was people leaving, and John said, hey, let me help you out by preaching or sending you a letter about the doctrine of Jesus. Now, I, I've been Southern Baptist a long, long time, and there's a lot of bells and whistles that come out at periodically. How to grow your church, how to kill your church. No, they don't have those. That just comes naturally. Uh, how to grow your Sunday school. Cur you know, all this curriculum, all these five ways to do this, three ways to do this, and, have it. and somebody's getting paid to do it, and that's, you know, that's, I guess, capitalism. But we try oftentimes to fix spiritual problems in the church with unspiritual, carnal means. Well, the people are leaving the church. Y'all, everybody good so far. I, I apologize for climate change. So we're all friends again, right? People are leaving the church, what do we do? Let's bring in, Justin will appreciate this. Let's bring in the evangelutionist, <laughs> right? Y'all know what an evangelutionist is. It's, um, it's not a satanic magician, it's a Christian magician. Anyway, let's bring in this group. Let's bring in this preacher. Let's bring in, it used to be, the wrestlers. <laughs> right? Um, Y'all thought, do I need to keep bringing in people or we're on the same page? And, and what it will do is we may have a special event and fill the church. Let's bring in this politician. Nobody thinks bringing in a politician is going to change a spiritual problem, but we, we uh, medicate ourselves in the church by seeing a full building. Now, everybody, carry, you're getting, on, getting along with me now. But when the politician goes, or the famous speaker goes, or the wrestler goes, or the singer goes, or the magician goes, the people go. And you have the same problem, if not worse, than you did before you tried to address it. And John says, you got a problem in this church, in, the, in God's church, and let's fix it with a spiritual answer. you got a spiritual problem, so let's fix it spiritually. Indi individually, people do that all the time. Spiritual problems tried to be cured with unspiritual or carnal means. And John says, hey, let's, let's, let's send you a letter about the doctrine of Jesus. Because once someone understands who Jesus is, they, you're going to find out real quick if they're on board or they're not on board. And that's really the purpose of this letter. And so here in our little three verses, I believe this is a portion of Scripture in this first letter where John says, hey, let me just throw in some encouragement. He says, uh, here's the reason or the reasons why I'm writing. And so I titled it, uh, Reasons Worth Writing. John thought this is going to be important. Right here in the first chapter, let me throw in a couple words of encouragement. And so he says, he actually says, I'm writing unto you because, or I have written because. And so I want us to look at two forms of encouragement here that John writes about. Really, it's an encouragement and an exhortation. And first, we're going to see the encouragement concerning sin. In verse 12, he says, I'm writing unto you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He could have stopped right there. That's worth writing about. Church, if I got up this morning, now th this, would, this would blow some people's mind, and it, you, you would think we need more services like this. If I got up and all I got up here this morning and said is, church, I just came here today to remind you, your sins have been forgiven. And the church erupted in praise and worship and adoration to the God who forgave. And I said, amen, let's go eat brunch. 
it would probably be adequate. Now, I don't do that because then you would expect me to do it again soon. <laughs> but I, I want us to understand the magnitude of verse 12. He's writing to Christians, my little children, he's not talking about babies. Matter of fact, verse 12, little children, is not even the same as verse 13, little children. He's saying little children as in offspring. Those of you who are part of the family of God, I'm writing unto you to tell you, now I'm saying this intentionally multiple times because some of you haven't looked up or looked excited about this yet. He said, I'm writing unto you little children, so when I say little children in a church service, in a Baptist church, a lot of little children ought to look up. That's offspring of the family of God. And that's you, you need to be paying attention right now. And John says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven. And the wave is starting. Little more amens here. This side still hadn't caught on, but I'm not gonna do it anymore because I'm trying to get done. And he wants us to know, he wants us to be encouraged. Church, I want us all to be encouraged together to know that our sins have been forgiven. What does that mean? What does it mean to have your sins forgiven? It means dismissed, pardoned. That word is the half a sermon, just the word forgiven. It's to cancel a debt. Do we understand as Christians that we owed a debt that you could never pay, I could never pay? The Bible says the wages, the price, the penalty for sin is death. The only price for sin that we could ever pay was dying. Everybody understand that? When we were born, we were headed for death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Separation from a holy God forever and ever after the physical death in a place the Bible still calls hell. Not just the physical torture of hell, but the mental and the spiritual and the emotional torture of being separated from God forever without an opportunity to respond. That's the price for sin. And all of us who have only been born once Anybody in this room, anybody watching, anybody listening a year from now or a week from now who's never been born twice, who's never been born again, you will pay the price for your sin. If you don't repent, if you're not born again, if you don't make Jesus Lord of your life, you will die paying the price for your sin. But those of us who have called on God, acknowledging our sin, confessing our sin under what I believe biblically teaches the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, revealing my sin and my need for a Savior. Those of us who have called on the name of the Lord and have been saved, have been forgiven have been, let me look at my notes again, um, pardoned from our sin. And he says, Christian, I'm writing to you. Just a little reminder, your sins have been forgiven. The penalty for your sin has been paid. The price for your sin has been paid. In verse chapter one, he says, he is the, Jesus is the propitiation for your sin. He paid the price for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us, being nailed to a cross, dying on a cross, that you and I could have his righteousness. Penalty for sin paid in full. Our destination has now changed. We live differently. 
We walk differently. We talk differently because we know our sins have been forgiven. We're not headed for a place called hell anymore. The price for our sin has been paid. He is the atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. In the first chapter, verse seven, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The child of God has assurance of eternal life because our sins have been forgiven. Have you heard that yet? Believer, child of God, do we understand what our life was B.C.? Before Christ? Do we understand that we were dead in our trespasses and sin? And that we were powerless to do anything about it? But God, who is rich in love and mercy, while we were yet sinners, sent his son Jesus to pay the price for our sins. That whoever calls on his name shall be saved. My little children, I want you to know your sins have been forgiven. So we see the believer's sins have been forgiven, but the believer's Savior is to be glorified. Hey, it's all right to do that any other day than just Sunday. I'm going to tell you, if God reminds you tomorrow morning that your sins have been forgiven, it's a good time to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. I didn't deserve it, but thank you. Thank you for your love that I didn't deserve, that I don't understand. It makes no sense to me. The believer's Savior is to be glorified. I write to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. Never miss that. We've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Any believer that's been forgiven was not forgiven because anything they did. Because they were almost good enough to get it. We could go around the room and take a poll and some of you were far, far away from getting it. Now, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek because all of us were far, far away from getting it. Not even the perfect 10-year-old that got saved was closer. I almost said a person's name, and I, that would probably never know. They might have liked it or might be mad and leave. I don't know. All of us were far away. He said, you've been saved. Your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Paul said later in Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Has raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, notice this, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We might come up with five reasons why we think we were saved. And they might get close to being biblical. But the one reason we were saved was to give God the glory. So that the world could say, can you believe that guy got saved? God must be good. Can you believe she got saved? There ain't no way she got saved. But God, who is rich in his grace, and it, see, see, you see the rationale there? It wasn't that she started turning her life around. It wasn't that he started going to church. It wasn't that, well, he, he wanted to turn over a new leaf, and God took notice and said, you know what, he's trying his hardest. I believe I'll save him. No, because if that were the case, we could all say, well, you know, he used to live like the devil, but then, you know, he made a New Year's resolution and he started doing better, and I think God liked that. Nah, 
We were dead in trespasses and sin. We were at enmity with God. We were anti-Christ. No man doing good. No man can think good. We were far, far away from him, all of us from the nicest one to the meanest one. And he saved you so that he gets the glory. Not that man gets the glory. Not that the church got the, well, that preacher must be preaching good, people getting saved. No, God is good and people get saved. He says, for his name's sake, God did not save you, me, or anybody to live a more comfortable life. God didn't save you, me, or anybody just so we could go to heaven. It's a pretty good benefit. Everybody God saved. Jesus gets the glory. The Father gets the glory for his name's sake. So we see some encouragement concerning sin, and then in verses 13 and 14, there's an exhortation. Paul, Peter, John, Moses, Adam, John, John. I was going to get all the names out, so I didn't say that again. John wants to encourage, wants to exhort us to sanctification. Some of y'all thought I was having a Mitch McConnell moment, didn't you? I just want to say, say something, Mitch. Don't just stand there. Say something. Y'all got a lot to, to Google after service, don't you, some of you? Oh, my goodness. Anybody start sweating when that happens? Like, oh, I'm not even there, and I'm embarrassed for him. Oh, oh, please change the Democrat quick. Anyway. Just say, like, peaches. Say, the ABCs. Say something. So I did the opposite. If I get stuck, I'm just going to start saying something, all right? So exhortation concerning sanctification. Megan was singing about that, and she didn't even call and ask me what I wanted her to sing. He outlines in these two verses three phases, if you will, stages, steps in sanctification or spiritual growth. It's important for us to understand, church, that we've been saved We've been sanctified, and we are being sanctified. And that scares some people off sometimes, but I think it's very biblically simple and clear. God saves us. Positionally, we go from lost to saved. We go from headed to hell to headed to heaven. I've said this on Wednesday night many times because we're all the way into Romans chapter 8 now. Yeah, what, 10 months? We're, no. And there's a lot to be said about that. But when we get saved, and I got saved, the next morning I woke up and I looked the same way. Now, I know some people don't like that. And there's some, there's certain preachers, you know, I woke up and I just looked in the mirror and I looked different. Well, I, I think I understand that, but you didn't. You might have had a different perspective of how you looked, but you were still ugly if you were ugly the day before. <laughs> if you were gray-headed the day before, you still gray-headed. I got saved. My hair turned black again. Amen. That was a good one there. That's, not, that's somewhere in Ephesians, I think, that happens. No, we, we get saved, and we're saved positionally. We have a new place, and God gets all the credit and all the glory. And I've said this so many times, I hope it's starting to sink in, and you've probably heard it if you've been in church more than a few weeks from some preacher. But salvation is the beginning. Getting saved is the beginning. Yes, don't, don't let me mess up your theology. If I got saved as a 10-year-old on a Wednesday night and somehow got ran over by a bus the next morning, I'm on my way to heaven. I mean, I'm so, I'm so, like, I'm seeing people start saying, you know, if I don't do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and I think people overthink it sometimes, and I think some people have made people overthink it, but I think if we're in a service, and I say, hey, if you want to be saved, come down here, and we're going to pray, I think if you walk out, I think you got saved. If you, if you trip and fall and bust your head, and it's all over, that sounds terrible, I, I think you got saved. You didn't have to come down here, let me touch you, sprinkle you, pray with you, Say a prayer, I believe by faith when you stepped out, making every decision, you've made the decision and you're born again and you're on your way to heaven. 
Matter of fact, sometimes I think that's probably better that you don't get messed up with the church afterwards because they're going to mess everything up. Not here. We're perfect. Everything here is good, just in case you're wondering. But positional sanctification is just the beginning. And if I stood before you today as a 49 and a half year old man, and I didn't know any more, not just about the word of God and memorization, but if I didn't have any more spiritual maturity in relationship with God today as I did the morning after the 10 year old got saved, I'm in a mess and you are too. And so Paul, Paul, Peter, John, Moses, John, it's Paul's fault for writing, being a writing hog of the New Testament. John, he calls out three different age groups, if you will. And he talks about sanctification. He calls out little children, young men, and women, and fathers, and mothers. It's not specifically young men as in a male. It's an age group. It's a category. Not just of you know, 15 to 25-year-olds, but spiritual age group, a spiritual phase, if you will. And it's an understanding, just by the necessity of it being in Scripture, there's an understanding that we're one of at least the three, which is an understanding that we grow in grace and knowledge of the Word of God. It's not an option. It's understood. It's understood that when someone gets saved, that's part, one of two parts of the Great Commission. We have now reached them. Now our job is to teach them. We've taught them to know him. Now we're going to teach them to grow in him. Two parts of the Great Commission. And so he says, and, and, and John messed it up. I found out he didn't mean to do it this way, but he wrote it backwards. But I'm going to, that's a lie, that's a joke. I'm going to start with the little children that we see in verse 13. The end of verse 13, it says, I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. This is real simple. It's not overcomplicated. What he's saying here. This little children is different than the little children in verse 12. Little children in verse 12 basically means offspring. I've already said that. Here he says little children, and he's talking not in a generic form of little children, but he's talking specifically, and the term would be infants in Christ. Now, this is really important. He's not talking about infants in Christ as in, you got saved today, you're an infant in Christ tomorrow. You are an infant in Christ tomorrow if you just got saved today, but he's also talking about people who are still infants in Christ 10 years later. And he says there's three, at least three different categories of spiritual maturity or sanctification. Really, all they know is in verse 13. All they know is the Father. It's, it's, it's pretty simple. If anybody can remember, some of you are pretty old and you can't remember, but make it up. No. When you got saved, you're like, all I know is I'm saved. That's enough. For now, right? I was just talking to somebody. Y'all understand. I don't know if he watches. Somebody probably tells him. He's got moles in here. But um, Curtis Parker would throw a microphone in anybody's face. I get scared when people get a microphone. And I think he encouraged it. Anybody got something to say? Hey. Get him a microphone. Say, whoa, whoa, we need some vetting. <laughs> know who they are, what they're about to say. And sometimes, if you've been in this place long enough, we wish the microphone would have blew up before it got to him. But I was talking to somebody and, um, just recently, and um, I think they're going to join her just anyway, one, about salvation, and they were, people are nervous about standing up in front of the church, and especially if they've ever seen it happen. And by the way, just, just for a side note, anybody who gets a microphone and says, well, I'm not much of a speaker, that's when you get worried. <laughs> right? So, yeah. 
Well, I, I thought you meant you didn't like to do it, but now I understand you're not much of a speaker. Now I get it. But I can remember, some of you remember this, and you, Curtis Parker wasn't the only one that did I think it was a generation. Like, come up there, you got to tell them what, to, what God did for you. And I'm not against that. Nobody be taking notes. He said that he didn't think people should. I didn't say that. But I'm not going to make somebody. You get up here right now. If you're not saved, no, I'm not doing it. And people get nervous. Like, you going to make me say something? And we were, we were having a discussion about baptism. This is how this came up. And uh, baptism is a public expression. It is a public display. And quite honestly, I've had multiple people say, hey, can we get baptized privately? And I don't look at them like I just did, but I said, well, let me, let's talk about biblical baptism. And the purpose of biblical baptism is primarily a public display of your faith. So by nature, it probably shouldn't be private. If that was the case, you could do it tonight when you take a bath. So we're not going to do that. <laughs> it's more about the public demonstration, the confession to the world. Look at me. Look at me. I, I made Jesus Lord of my life, and I'm not ashamed. Dunk me now. Buried in his likeness, raised to walk in new life. Right? But when I got saved on a Wednesday night, somebody said, you need to go tell the preacher. So I remember telling the preacher, I could take you to the spot in the parking lot where I told him, he said, well, amen, brother, we're going to get you in front of the church on Sunday. Now, I live 26 feet from the church, so I couldn't just lay out, really. And, but that might keep some people from showing up to church the next Sunday. They're going to give me a microphone. But I remember, and got to tell, tell the church what Jesus did for you. I got saved. That's about it. <laughs> amen, brother, right? And here's the reality. I said all that to say this. That's about all I knew. And when you got saved, that's about all you knew. You knew the Father. What does that mean? He says you knew the Father. You've known the Father. That means you knew you were a child of God. That means you knew you were a part of the family of God. Did you know about the doctrine of sanctification? Probably not. You probably didn't know a lot more. And he says, for this group of people, you little children, you know you're part of the family. You've known the Father. And I have to remind you, Paul says in Galatians 4, the reason you know that is because the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. That, that's important there. That sounds like an amen. Like, yeah, I got that. I'm Baptist. I understand that. Now, that's really important. Remember why John's writing? So that you may know that you're born again. He's writing that your joy may be complete or full. Hey, when, when you are born again, the only reason you can know you're born again is because the Holy Spirit reveals to you you're a child of God. A lot of people look for outside reasons, and, and I think we should do some things to try to help encourage people and disciple. But Paul said in Galatians, and because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Basically, Sam, when we get saved, all we know is we're saved. Here's the reality. It shouldn't stop there. Shouldn't stop there. Peter says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow. If you, be, if you have tasted the Lord is gracious. Oh, that's a, that's a powerful statement. As newborn babes, we should desire the sincere milk of God's word. Just like a baby. If you have tasted the Lord is great. In other words, if you've ever tasted that good milk, you want a lot more. Paul went to the church and wrote to the church in Corinth, and most of us know this, and he made this statement, and it was, it was pretty abrupt. In chapter 3, I won't read it all. He says, I came to you to speak to you as spiritual, but I couldn't. I had to talk to you as carnal. I'm that was a letdown for Paul. You kind of got to feel sorry for Paul here. I mean, Paul's, Paul's Paul. And he's investing in this church. He's invested and he's investing. And he comes to them and he's, he says, let's have a Bible study. I want to help you all out. And they're all sitting around. 
He says, I came to, to give you some spiritual stuff, but here I am doing the Beatitudes. I didn't say the Beatitudes weren't good. Here, here we are with Jesus wept. And he says, you should have been growing, but you're still babies or babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat because you weren't able to handle it. For you're still carnal. There's envy and strife among you. It was, a, it was a letdown. It was a gut punch to Paul to come to a church that he had sweat and bled for and to see that they're still babies in Christ. It ought to be motivation to us that we're growing in grace and knowledge of the word of God so that we can eat the steak and not the formula. He says, you little children, all you know is you're born again. And then in verse 13, he says, I write to you, in 13 and 14, he says, I write to you young men because you've overcome the wicked one. Notice there's a transition here between little babies and young men and women. There has been some spiritual growth. I have to say this because it, it sounds bad, uh, it sounds mean, but I'm not a mean person, as most of you know, so I can't be saying it mean, but it sounds mean to say, um, unfortunately, too many churches, especially larger churches, have turned into a spiritual baby nursery. I didn't, not this church, so y'all don't take it personal. When you, I felt personal when I said that. Because we just wanna keep people comfortable. We don't want them to leave. We don't want them to be mad. And I'm, I'm flesh and blood, if you haven't figured that out, and I don't want anybody to leave, and I really don't want anybody to be mad. At least not at me. Right? Everybody understand that. But it happens. And a lot of times it happens over the little baby stuff. Because they're still little babies, little children, and not young men and young women. And I'm talking to me too. If I'm not careful, I'll let the little carnal, silly, little child things bother me more than they should. But I should be growing in grace and knowledge and be at least a young man. In the word of God, there has to be a transition so that those silly little childish things no longer bother me like they used to. I didn't say they don't still bother me like they used to. If you're not careful, a good church can turn into a nursery where all we're doing is magic shows and hot dog suppers and kumbaya and whatever y'all want, y'all just tell me. We got a suggestion box out there and you just write in, you don't even have to sign it and we'll do our best to cater to your every need. Now that sounds a little overly sarcastic, but in essence, that's what's happening. And you tell me a church like that that's gonna stand up for something worth standing for. They won't even agree on the meat in church. They're sure not gonna go out in the community and fight against the devil. That's a little uncomfortable. We like comfort. So let's just hang out here. We'll pray. Something like that. He says, young men, so there's been a transition. He says, young men, I've written to you Listen to this, because you've overcome the, world, the wicked one. Oh, that's a powerful statement. Later in verse 14, he says, I've written to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. This is really important to understand. They haven't overcome temptation, but they have overcome the tempter. It's the difference in a little child Christian and a young man Christian. We fall for too much as a young, immature, unlearned Christian child. But as we grow in grace and knowledge, and right here specifically, this is really important, not grow in um, fellowship, 
but grow in the word of God in verse 14. He said, you've overcome the wicked one because you're strong and the word of God abides in you. Yeah, there's power in numbers. We can all get together and three stronger than one. And it's biblical. But there's nothing stronger in overcoming the tempter, Satan, the evil one, than being filled with and abiding in the word of God. Why do we study to show ourselves approved unto God? Why do we grow in grace and knowledge? Why do we hide God's word in our hearts? You know the rest, right? That I might not sin against God. Why do we do those things? Not just for the metallic stars on the chart, but so when the tempter comes, when the evil one comes, the word of God is in us and it can come out of us. Just like in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus is fought uh, by the tempter, he approaches, the devil approaches Jesus. Anybody ever, that ever sunk into any young man or woman Christian? That the devil came to Jesus? It wasn't a, ch a chance encounter like, who are you? I'm Jesus. No, he knew who he was. He knew he was perfect. He knew he was God, but yet he still tried to tempt Jesus. Who are we to think the devil won't try to tempt us? How did Jesus respond? Y'all don't know the answer to this. It's a good one. Number one, temptation. Devil, it is written. How about this one, Jesus? Devil, number two, temptation. I got one for you. It is written. Oh, I got a good one, Jesus. How about temptation number three? Hold on, let me find it. Um, it is written. How did Jesus overcome the temptation of the tempter? The word of God. Teenager, young person old enough to read, I will hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is why, this is why, this reason is why this church still has a wanna. Not because, oh, we've been doing 10 years, might as well keep doing it. No, because every single Wednesday, boys and girls are gonna read and have read to them, it is written. I don't know if y'all figured this out or not, but they're not doing that in school. And they're not supposed to. You're supposed to. I'm supposed to. We're supposed to. That's why we have Sunday school. Ooh. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have Awana. That's why we have paid positions here full time to teach our children, teach our youth, train them up. We take it serious. Not because ABC Baptist Church has a youth pastor or ABC Baptist Church has a children's director or ABC Baptist, no, we do it because it's important. So we have positions where people invest in children and teenagers the word of God. It's not a competition with another church. It's the, it's the purpose and mission of this church. Why do we have kids camp? Well, we've been doing it for a long time. A lot of kids come. All right, well, if that was the reason, we could stop and save a lot of time, effort, money, all that stuff. Take a week of vacation. No, we keep doing it. We keep spending the money. It's not a profitable industry, by the way, at $35 a kid. In case anybody was figuring that out. But that's not why we do it. We do it so our kids and those kids and those kids and those kids and those kids Come onto the campus. Yeah, they have fun, but the word of God is gonna be taught to them because in the word of God is the power to overcome the wicked one. Christian, you've been saved more than a couple days. You shouldn't be hanging out in the little children group anymore. You gotta at least be in the young man and the young woman because you've got a tempter. I've got a tempter. I've got a wicked one. And he wants me to fail. And he wants you to fail. And the preacher and the Sunday school teacher and even a good godly spouse, as great as they all are, can't usurp the authority of you knowing the word of God 
when he comes knocking on your door, knocking on my door. I didn't say he's coming with a riddle and you gotta find the answer. Not what I said. He's not telling a joke and you gotta find the biblical answer. He's just gonna come to you and tell you, hey, you really think, by the way, how does he normally tempt? He started from the beginning and he hadn't changed his, his ways. Is that what God really said? Does that sound familiar in Genesis with Adam and Eve? How important is it that the tempter tempts you with the word of God? Well, I probably shouldn't do that. And he comes up and says, well, is that, can you find that verse? Oh, that's a good one. The devil's not the only one that uses that one. They some church members use that one. Have, have you ever found a verse that says you can't do that? See, that's what a little child, now I'm not being mean, that's what a little child asks. But a young man says, well, I don't have to have a verse for it. I know better. That's I didn't even have that in my notes. That's good. That came straight from God right there. See, it's about the perspective. It's about how you're filtering. It's the worldview that you're looking through. I don't have to have a verse that says, do not do this. I've got the Holy Spirit living within me. I've got the Word of God as my God, and I can make pretty good decisions with those two. Kids used to ask all the time. I taught middle school. I taught high school. I was youth pastor. And here was my favorite. And here's what I figured out in nearly 20 years of full-time ministry. Or over 20. I'm getting old. Um, little kids turn into bigger kids, turn into bigger kids. Okay? You're 70 years old. You're still a big kid. You do the same silly things you did when you were 17. You just do them at a, as a 70-year-old, and slower, obviously. <laughs> but here's what everybody asks. Here's what the kids ask. Don't the Bible say somewhere? That's a good one. That's, that's good, Rowan County. Don't the Bible say somewhere? Or where does it say in the Bible that? And, and I used to use this. I'd never read it anywhere. I thought it was great. And it says, you know, the, I've not found in the Bible anywhere where it says, don't hit yourself in the face with a hammer. But I can connect the dots and figure out it's probably not a good idea. Young men, writing to you because you've overcome the wicked one. So much to say there. And the last he says is fathers. I write unto you, fathers, verse 13, because you've known him that is from the beginning. Doesn't that just sound wise? You've known him that was from the beginning. A little different than the children. You've known the father. Now you, you old men, no, he didn't say that. You fathers and you mothers. You're, you're, you were here, now you're here, and now you're here. Here's not the final, right? You're, there's still room to go, right? Everybody good with that? But you're here. And you've got a lot. Uh, here's, where I, here's where I love the practicality of it, church. If you're, a young, if you're a father or a mother, you're progressing in your sanctification. Most of it is because of your relationship with the Word of God. But it also has to do with your years of living. It really does have to do with the, the fact that you've matured and you have wisdom and discernment beyond my nearly 50-year-old comprehension because you've lived through more than I've lived through. You've suffered maybe more than I, you've overcome temptation more than I have overcome temptation and I have overcome more than the 15 or 20-year-old and you see the process and the progress. And I've said this so many times in different ways, but you fathers and mothers in this case, you older spiritual more wise, more discerning, more sanctified. Everybody all right with that terminology? We and we need you to be mothers and fathers in the church. Everybody good with that? There are people looking up to you. I look up to you. 20-year-olds look up to you. 
And they should. And you ought to be an example. And your faithfulness, not just to church, but to the word of God and to loving people and doing what Jesus would have you do. I'm writing to you because, not just because you knew the Father, you've known him that is from the beginning. He's talking about, you know the deep eternality of Jesus. You know. You've studied the word of God. You have a deep knowledge of the eternal God. Those of you who are fathers and mothers, you've gotten to the place to where Maybe you say like Paul in Colossians chapter three, I've, I've done a lot, I've experienced a lot, I've gained a lot, got a lot of education, had a great job, got a lot of money, or enough. But you go on like Paul and say, your greatest desire is that you may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. I count all that stuff as dung. I just want to know him. See, that's not the week after someone gets saved level of spiritual maturity and sanctification. But that's a mother and a father who've been serving Jesus for a long, long time. And they've been through the valleys. They've been on the mountaintops. They've been through the bad phone calls. They've been through the diagnoses. They're the ones, they're the ones who have lived out and still by faith believe that all things work together for good for them who love the Lord, those who are called according to his purpose. They've weathered the storms. They look like they've been through the storms, but yet they're still faithful. They're the Davids, the King Davids, who have served God or after his own heart, been through a lot, been chased, been sought after, had a few arrows thrown their way, been set up, sinned, confessed, repented, and grew. Years and years. David made some mistakes, but he had a heart for God. And God took note of that. He wants to serve me like no other man. And David been through a lot, but he still served God. He still had a desire to serve God. And it wasn't a young Christian infant child. It wasn't a young man who was growing. Most likely, it was a spiritual father and a spiritual mother who would write, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't want anything. I shall not want. There is nothing I need more than the shepherd. Y'all see, see who's writing that? This is a spiritual father, a spiritual mother. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. See, that's a spiritual father mother who is, is um, succumbing to the leadership of God. He leads me beside still waters. It's a spiritual, mature father or mother who says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. It's a spiritual, sanctified man or woman who understands that the rod and the staff are comfort to them, not just discipline to them. You prepare for me a table in the middle of my enemies. Have you ever really read Psalm 23 or just quoted it at a funeral? <laughs> prepare a table for me 
in the middle of my enemies? I love that picture. If I was an artist, I'd draw it. I mean, people got guns, bows, arrows, swords, and I'm eating a bologna and cheese sandwich right in the middle of it. <laughs> Maybe a can of potted meat with some crackers. Right? You prepare a table for me in the middle of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. See, that's not a little kid Christian who just got happy at youth camp and then had to go back to school and hates life. This is a 70-year-old who's been serving God for 50 and 60 years who says, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell with him forever. John writes this letter so that we may know that we believe on the name of the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Before we pray, two questions. Do you know that you're born again? And Christian, do you, are you growing in grace and knowledge? Are you further along in this spiritual journey than you were five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? It's an expectation from God that we are. Do you know you're born again? And are you growing? Father, we thank you for your word. We pray your Holy Spirit convicts hearts. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.